welcome back to another episode of the Who's Saving the Planet podcast, the Context Edition. So I'm really excited today to bring you a conversation with Glenn Hurwitz, the CEO of Mighty Earth. What Mighty Earth and what Glenn focuses on are the companies that are behind the scenes, so not the big brand names we know like Costco or McDonald's or Kellogg's, but the companies that provide them the products so that they can go sell to the general consumer. And the question is, how do you influence those companies, which are massive, to change the way they operate, even though they aren't directly interacting with the consumer? So getting the huge corporations behind the scenes to adopt a more environmentally focused and responsible way of doing business. It's a huge problem to tackle, but one that is instrumental to that fundamental question of how we are going to change the world for the better and save the planet. Before we get into the conversation, I wanted to give them a little bit of a plug because I think the work that they're doing is not only vitally important, but the tactics they're employing to affect these change in these massive corporations that would prefer to work behind the scenes is fascinating in and of itself. So go to mightyearth.org, check it out for yourself, take a spin around the website. There's some really fascinating, not only materials, but reports, a lot of stuff to look at. And if you can, chip in a little bit, donate if possible. Okay, here we go. This is my conversation with Glenn Horowitz, the CEO of Mighty Earth. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us today on the Who's Saving the, Pot, Who's Saving the Planet podcast, the Context Edition. So you are the CEO of the Mighty Earth Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about what the mission for the organization is and what kind of advocacy you're involved in? Sure. Mighty Earth is a global environmental advocacy organization. We work on really big issues like uh, saving uh, tropical rainforests, protecting oceans, and solving climate change. Uh, we have a significant focus on changing uh, private sector actions. Um, so we take on some of the world's biggest agribusinesses, polluters, et cetera, who are most responsible for environmental devastation, and we attempt to change those industries. We also work on changing government policy, although lately uh, there have not been as many opportunities to do that in a positive way, uh, particularly in the United States. The way you described your the tactical way that you go about changing the world for the better is uh, combining a lot of different influences or influencers, a lot of different levers in what you described as the perfect storm. Can you just give us an idea about what that means for you and like a case study of like how it actually works in the real world? So, you know, we are trying to make big changes and that means taking on really powerful uh, targets that seem on first blush to be unmovable. And so to do that, we, you know, we do a lot of research into figuring out how to move um, big companies like Cargill, which is the world's largest agribusiness, uh, and also, um, you know, probably the, the largest meat company in the world and is the leading driver of um, deforestation, a leading driver of deforestation, agricultural pollution, etc. So the, the challenge with changing a big company like that, which is America's largest privately held company, bigger even than the notorious Coke Industries, is that they don't interact with consumers or citizens. Um, right. And so we find levers to, to move them. And what we found over and over again across different campaigns is that if we can generate sufficient pressure through a number of different avenues at the same time, uh, it can change even the most uh, notorious hard to move obscure companies. Uh, and so what that means is um, grassroots organizing, going into communities um, where these companies operate and mobilizing the, the people who are most affected. 
it means working with their employees and you know many employees want to be work at a company uh, where they feel proud of the, what that company is doing and aligned with their values that they're doing something good in the world when they hear that a company like Cargill um, is engaging in massive environmental destruction uh, or aiding and abetting displacement of indigenous peoples from their historic lands it's very upsetting to people who work in these companies who didn't sign up for that um, who maybe bought right. about uh, you know sustainable agriculture joining together for a green planet um, without much scrutiny and then you know they learn the real record behind these companies and they want to do something about it and so they, they can be a powerful voice it means working with investors and bankers who want to deploy their money um, to solve big problems like climate change and if you bring them evidence that a company that they're invested in or loaning money to uh, is not living up to those values they are often willing to bring pressure um, it definitely means and this is probably the, our greatest emphasis uh, bringing uh, engagement and pressure to bear on uh, customers of the companies that we're trying to change. Um, and, you know, Cargill, for instance, is an agricultural trader. So it uh, sells raw materials to companies like uh, Stop and Shop, Giant, McDonald's, et cetera. Um, so you don't interact directly with them, but um, they have, you know, their business depends on selling to other big companies. And that's why we, um, you know, have big campaigns focused on some of those brands. Uh, and there's a lot of, you know, other stuff that goes in, including like developing practical solutions. But if we're able to deploy all of these pressures at once, everywhere the, those corporate executives turn, they're going to be hearing about these issues. You know, part of that, they may be hearing about it from their own family members who read about, um, you know, what their mom or dad are engaged in or quite upset about it and asking them, why are you doing this? Uh, and so it can even get to that very personal level. And the goal is that once they're facing all these pressure, it creates a little bit of urgency and they can't ignore it and not, can't just think about what the next quarterly profit statement is. They have to think about what, you know, these campaigns becoming an existential threat to their company. And that leads them to look at, okay, what can we do to solve these problems? And very often when it comes to the environment, the cost of addressing these challenges is, is margin. And even in some cases, uh, there are economic benefits to operating in a more environmentally sustainable manner. So I'm a consumer of lots of things, but I generally know how the things that I consume actually arrived at my front door if I'm ordering them or in a restaurant. And understanding what the providence of those those products and the services that we use and how they how the supply chain upstream is affecting the environment and affecting the world can be something really difficult to unpack. And then also understanding how I can make better decisions about the purchasing decisions that I'm making. It's, it sounds like it's, it's your mission is, or the, the thing that you are focused on is looking at it from a consumer lens and explaining to us here, these are, these are the ways that your choices are going to impact the world that may not be so obvious, that may not be so upfront. Exactly. And the way that you talked about it with the consumer sentiment is definitely, we feel this, this is, there's a sea change happening. The tide is turning where people are trying to make smarter choices. And so empowering the consumer with a little bit of information can definitely impact how the corporations are considering what that perception is going to be to the larger market. Absolutely. And you know, Nobody who buys a hamburger or a steak or some chicken is doing it because they want to drive the extinction of orangutans or displace indigenous people. Um, and 
you know, the, the challenge is it's very difficult to access information, you know, when you're going to any kind of mainstream supermarket um, about the real provenance of meat you buy. Um, and so there's, yeah, so how do you, how do you do that? How do you, how well, do you, how do you put hard. that front like, and center? You know, I think, I think as an individual, you know, first of all, probably the number one thing in terms of our diets that we can do or in general in our lifestyles to make a positive impact for the planet is reduce or eliminate the amount of meat that we eat. Um, you know, meat drives um, up to a quarter of total climate pollution. And more than that, it has such a negative impact on the land. The challenge is, you know, me reducing the amount of meat I eat, like that's great. It has an, it has an impact, but it's not gonna change the giant systems that are causing the, these problems. What we're trying to do is actually address those whole systems. So it's not, it's not so much for us, the main focus is not on individual action, although that's, that's helpful and important, but rather how consumers can actually have an influence right. on these giant institutions. Um, and I'll, I'll just say quickly, you know, this again, like taking on the meat industry, transforming the meat industry, we've had small victories within it, but this is, this is the big challenge we're undertaking right now. And we know right. from our experience in other industries that, that these strategies work. And that's, that's, it's on that basis that we're asking people to get involved. Looking back over, over your career, and you have been having these fights for the last two decades, at least, right? You have, having been in the trenches for that long and having extracted these small victories from these large companies, is this the, what, what do you think the most tactical, efficient way to affect the most change is? Is it getting the consumer sentiment to make them change these things? Is it a legislative fix that's coming from a top-down governmental influence? Um, is it a financial one where they're feeling the bottom line? And without just saying it's some mix of the three, is there one that you think like this is going to be more of an effective way to push the limited amount of resources and efforts and time that we have? So I would say right now, definitely focusing on the private sector is, is the biggest way that we can have an influence. Mm -hmm. Of course, I, I hold out hope for a Green New Deal um, that you know, puts a price on pollution, that, that taxes what you burn, not what you earn alone. Um, and that kind of signal of government policy, that government policy and others, banning imports of deforestation related products, insisting that agriculture be sustainable, mandating shifts to clean energy. We need that. We need it fast. We need government to take a role, a big role, a leadership role. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, right now, that's just not happening. And it's not, it's not going to happen as long as Trump is, is in office. The thing we found is that even in that context, you can make incredible progress. And this is actually important almost no matter what the administration in the United States is, because, um, you know, as as big of a polluter and driver of destruction as the U.S. is, um, you know, right now China is uh, actually much, much bigger climate polluter than we are. Um, yeah. we, you know, Asia in general, if you add it all up, is um, you know with with enormous populations and and rising consumption levels, um, it's a big problem. And so, just solving the U.S. alone doesn't solve these issues. If China's building new coal plants or increasing its consumption of meat, which it is, and importing more and more beef and animal feed from, from Brazil and other parts of South America. So like these private sector strategies we found, which we, you know, we, we came to because we were desperate for solutions at a time when the government here was so hostile to them. Uh, and, and what we found is that you can actually like, with relatively small amounts of money, you do need citizens to be involved. You can really change these enormous industries even without that much government help. And, and so, you know, to give you one example, um, 
palm oil, which is uh, used to make soap and shampoo and added to cookies and baked goods and all sorts of things. Um, it is the largest driver of deforestation in Southeast Asia. It's cleared more than 30,000 square miles. Um, you know, I, I started working on this because I was in Southeast Asia and I flew from uh, Singapore to Kuala Lumpur. And, you know, it was like an hour long flight and out both sides of the, the windows at 35,000 feet, the only organism you see growing is palm oil. And that all used to be mm -hmm. tropical rainforest filled with orangutans and elephants and tigers. And it's just been completely denuded. And that's, that's what you see wherever there's monoculture agriculture at scale. And these are huge plantations. And, you know, this industry sold mostly to Asia. Um, it was engaged in, you know, terrible practices, land grabbing, murder, et cetera. People knew about it. People cared about what was happening to the climate because of it, to, to endangered species. Um, they didn't know what to do about it. And we analyzed and we found this one company, Wilmar, which is Asia's biggest agribusiness, controlled 45% of global palm oil trade. And so we did the analysis, did the, tried to bring the perfect storm to it. We found, similar to what we found with, with Stop and Shop, we found Kellogg's entering a joint venture partnership with, with this company. And so we sent grassroots organizers to, to talk about this and educate volunteers all over Michigan where Kellogg's is based and worked with investors who, who you know, in quite dramatic form weighed in. And what that led to was the, when we did a report and I went on TV and talked about how this one company was driving enormous damage in Southeast Asia, the CEO of the company reached out to me and um, sent me an email. It was very defensive, but um, from the research we did, I found- <laughs> That means you're doing something right though, right? It, it's, like if, you, exactly. if you're getting a defensive email from a CEO, you're pushing a lever that is causing a reaction. You're, you're exactly right. And, and, and what happened, we also tried to seize that opportunity and not just write it off. And I sensed he was, he might, you know, he's a professional business person. He wasn't just sort of an ideologue. And so, um, you know, I wrote him back and, and suggested we meet. We started talking on the phone and 10 days later, I was sitting across from him in the boardroom in Singapore. Yeah. And, you know, he yelled at me for 15 minutes about how unfair he thought NGOs were in general. But then once he got that off his chest, he was really willing to listen. And we had a roller coaster of negotiations over the next five months. The campaign really ramped up um, on the volunteer level from investors, from customers, and they started to feel a huge amount of pressure. And so this company that at the time was ranked 500 out of 500 on Newsweek's global rankings of sustainability behind ExxonMobil, Monsanto, China Coal, all these other baddies, um, decided to utterly change and adopt the strongest forest and human rights policy uh, of global agribusiness. This is an Asian company, you know, which is not how people think, where, where people think environmental change is going to come from. And they're way ahead of, they were way ahead of their American competitors. And we were able to leverage that commitment um, and policy in, within a year with our allies into getting the, you know, 90% of the, the whole palm oil industry to adopt the same policies. And there's been ups and downs since then. We've had a lot of focus on implementation. We do satellite monitoring to make sure they're doing it. But at the end of the day, like the la when we started this work, every year, year in, year out, there was a million acres of deforestation for palm oil. And we've, the 2018 and 2019, it was less than 250,000. So, you know, we've, we've saved, every year we're saving, um, you know, we think 300,000 uh, hectares of forest. So, so uh, hundreds of thousands of acres. And that adds up. It's a gigaton scale climate success. And, and that's how you do it. And it, like, we've had this example of success we've had in other industries. 
And now we're taking on the real big one, which is the meat industry. Right. So the, that's, I think that's a, a wonderful illustration of the perfect storm type of influence where you are creating lots of different, or you're utilizing lots of different levers to achieve an outcome. What that story also illustrated, or what, what I took away from that was not only was it success, but in order to replicate it, you need to do that one at a time. So you take on these industries iteratively, right? In, in order for it to be effective, you need to focus all of that attention on one specific industry and one specific outcome. And it takes a lot of time to do that. You need to build up that grassroots support. You need to uh, achieve a, a level of awareness and then activation and to influence those companies. What we don't have that much of right now is time globally. Right. We, so how, how do you take this model that you've seen successful and then scale it up you know, in like a tech sort of way? How do you take this and say we need to, excuse the metaphor because it's a terrible one, but like pour gas on the fire right. of this positive influence and change? Well, you know, I think the extraordinary thing about these, these strategies, this perfect storm strategy is that it actually works incredibly quickly and it's not dependent on the political environment of, of the moment. And so, you know, we were able to drive substantial change in the palm oil industry for gigaton scale climate impact in less than a year. Really? Um, it was that it was that quick? Maybe I misunderstood then. I thought it was it took a, a, a couple of years to illustrate that. The campaign started in, in June 2013. By uh, the end of 2013, Wilmar had announced its policy. By the end of 2014, traders representing 90% of the palm oil industry had announced similar policies. And you know, to be like, these things are not always linear. So right. um, we had major challenges in the early years with, with them actually implementing. Um, and we've, through improved monitoring that we've launched and alerts and camp more campaigns, um, we've, we've dramatically improved the monitoring in the industry. And so like, but now, you know, within, within a few years, we, like by 2017, deforestation in the palm oil industry had plummeted and remained at low levels. And we need to remain vigilant. We want to get rid of it entirely. But right. like, it was a big change that happened quickly. And, and then we've done similar things in the rubber industry in, in cocoa and those other industries, you know, see what's happened in palm oil. They don't want to get the bad um, reputation that palm oil has. So like in rubber, you know, again, within less than a year, we had 90% of the whole industry saying they would implement it. We've, we've set up this whole monitoring body with them. Uh, I guess so that, that could be a great point where it's like, if this could serve as a deterrent, that would accelerate the pace of other industries adopting what you're, what you're saying your desired outcome is if they see market share and you know, a related or a competing industry diminish because of the effect of this perfect storm strategy. It, that's exactly right. And I think in rubber in particular, which is similar issues in, in chocolate, um, you know, we've, we've had that experience. And not to say there's no challenges, but like it's, it's gone surprisingly well what we're taking on right now with the, the meat industry though, this is a giant industry. This is the biggest deforester. This is the biggest polluter in global agriculture. This is the biggest, you know, this is perhaps the biggest single reason why we even have a climate crisis, why there's an extinction crisis. Uh, so yeah, it's going to take more resources to win this and scale it. And, you know, we've had some philanthropic support, which is great. Um, I right. certainly would ask people to go on our website, mightyearth.org and click on the donate button and, and support us to scale this up. But like, well, let's take a minute and pause there then. The website is mightyearth.org and there is, I'm sure, a prominently featured donate button yeah. that everyone should should make good use of. Exactly. Thank you for that. And, you know, we will, as you'll see from our website, we put it to good use. So, and, you know, look, from my perspective, like, I don't think there's a single silver bullet, but I right. think there's some 
some really big things that together can make the difference. So number one um, is, and this is big, this is a, a big issue when you're talking about emissions and also you know, like sucking carbon out of the air. We need to utterly break the link between deforestation and agriculture. And probably the number one- What, what does that mean? So I wanna pause there just to understand, what does that mean? Yeah, so like historically, um, you know, agriculture expanded through destroying native ecosystems. That was true, uh, you know, 150 years ago on the frontier in the United States, um, where um, we, you know, this country converted, you know, killed off the bison, um, right. Native Americans, and established, you know, corn, soy, and other and, and livestock agriculture out to the frontier, um, and. That is that process is what we're trying to fight in in South America and, and, and across the tropics now because that's the new frontier for even further expanding, especially the meat industry. Um, and so, however, what we've seen and is is that actually paradoxically the destruction of the past makes possible a more sustainable future um, because there was so much deforestation in the past. You can actually expand agriculture without that damage because there's there's so much degraded land that you can bring back into production for cheaply um and and that's that's a big fundamental fact that has allowed these campaigns to succeed is that there's an easy option to address them but i, I think is it, is it succeeding or is that something that is actually being able to have a substantive impact and yeah like, health and safety of our planet yeah, I mean, this is the thing that like is both exciting to us and extremely frustrating, which is, um, you know, the, the success I talked about in reducing deforestation for palm oil. It's it's possible because these companies are it's not they haven't stopped expanding. They're just expanding on unused, previously deforested land. Um, and in South America, in the Brazilian Amazon for soy, which is essentially animal feed, um, in 2006, in response to campaigns like this, uh, Cargill, ADM, Bungie, the big ag traders they agreed to do what we're asking them to do in the rest of South America. And they um, banned all deforestation um, and it worked. Within three years, deforestation for soy in the Brazilian Amazon went down to zero. It's stayed at near zero, it stayed at near zero levels. Since then, they've been able to expand the area planted by 6 million acres because of these available degraded lands. And so it's one example of like, you know, and the frustrating thing is it's like this destruction is so pointless. And, yeah. and so, um, and you know, there's, there's, it's on a macro level, like it makes absolutely no sense. And then like on a micro level, why are they doing it? Well, they've got deals with particular people who may own a lot of forest. And so it's, you know, corruption and lack of planning and all this. There's, there's, you know, relatively simple ways to address that, you know, more, more broadly, like what our world needs to do is break the link between economic growth and environmental pollution. Your that's experiment. a great point. And that's a very, I mean, we're living through that moment right now where we're seeing the first contraction in our global economy under this short period of time that we have in generations. How, what can we learn from that? What can we learn from how we can shrink that economy while still producing a lifestyle and an economic situation that is good for a lot of the people? Yeah. I mean, we want to, you know, I, th I think we've seen over the last several decades, especially uh, it's entirely possible to grow the economy and protect the environment. Um, Europe has had strict carbon caps since 1990 and, and has reduced its emissions, I think, you know, 30% below 1990 levels or about on track to do that and have mm -hmm. slowed down their economy. California has dramatically decreased its pollution through the Clean Air Act and other mechanisms. And, you know, its, its economy has grown and grown over decades. Um, and so, and as I mentioned, clean energy is now cheaper. So this is, this is entirely possible. 
I think what delays it are, um, and you know, at some level inevitable, but as you said, we're, we're in this race against time. So it like doesn't yeah. really matter if it happens a hundred years from now. Yeah, we'll, have, we'll have a whole lot of different problems to work. I mean, it, 20 years from now, 10 exactly. years. Exactly. And so like, this is where these kinds of campaigns come in. And so I think when it comes to agriculture and deforestation, probably the number one thing is like, are the type of campaigns that we're doing going to succeed in, in changing these big companies? Because governments are not doing enough. When it comes mm -hmm. to clean energy, when it comes to, you know, an overall cap on climate, you know, yeah, like Trump being in office is terrible and we need to get him out and, and also, you know, have a, a Democrat um, in office, but I think that's the only place it's going to come from realistically, who's, who's prioritizes this, makes a Green New Deal happen at scale, proffers solutions commensurate with the scale of the challenge. I think in the past, you know, even, you know, while Democrats have had a much better record than Republicans, uh, they have not always acted with the urgency required. And, they, you know, the good news is now there's a lot of pent up frustration in, um, you know, among people who care about climate. And I don't think that they're going to give, if Biden wins, like a free pass. You, having spent so much time in and around politics, I got to imagine it's pretty frustrating to see, like you said, all of that frustration, anxiety, generally within the younger voters. So people under 40, the climate change issue is more of an impetus for them to make a decision about who they will vote for. However, the younger voters still don't participate in voting at the levels of their older parents and grandparents do. So how do, how do we get, and I, I know there's no silver bullet for this either, but how do we get th that translation between the anxiety to the action? Um, I mean, this is one of the big challenges and it's, it's not just voting. It's also like being active in other ways. They're probably even more powerful, um, like engaging in the campaign. It's, you know, it's overcoming the cynicism. And I think yeah. one of the things we need to do is give people examples of where their involvement actually has led to success. You know, with our work, um, and I think this is a lesson very applicable in the electoral politics realm, you know, we're taking on very distant targets. And so we have to explain why we think making a phone call, making it, you know, doing an email or better yet doing something in person when that's possible uh, can, or, or posting a message on social media can actually make a difference. And we have examples of success. I think the, um, you know, what, what in politics you need to do is actually really inspire people with a transformative vision so they don't think just because it's not Trump, it's just going to be more of the same, more politicians. Like you have to have a clear, ambitious vision that's exciting. And I, so, I think Democrats have struggled with that at times. So we just saw Bernie Sanders come out with that, with that, with this yeah. amazing well, transformative <laughs> vision. And yet he was not able to galvanize this movement that you know, he purported to, that he said he would. And, and largely it was because younger people didn't come out and vote for him. Yes, that is undeniable. Um, and I think, you know, speaking outside of like my role at Mighty Earth, but like, I think you have to have that inspiration, but that's not the only thing. And so, you know, clearly the thing that um, inhibited him was there were people were afraid of his progressive vision as well. And so I think you both have to have an inspiring vision, but also one um, that is framed in a reassuring way. You know, Bernie Sanders is actually a revolutionary. And so while that might be exciting to those of us who think, you know, we need a kind of revolution. On the other hand, you know, I think, I think the if you get into specifics, I think he, you know, he or similar progressives win um, on, on the qu policy questions, but it has to be done in a reassuring way. 
so yeah. frustrating though that we have to thread the needle between giving us what we want which is a salvation for the future but doing it in a way that sort of got kid gloves so that everyone feels sort of mushy about it at the same time yeah and yeah. you know you talk about different demographics like there's a generational divide there um i i would say actually this is where the coronavirus pandemic comes in um yeah. you've seen trump's polling numbers decline significantly among older voters at this time and i think we've we've actually there's an opportunity to sort of um make people rethink a lot of the rhetoric on different subjects that's coming from the white house so um you know and that includes are we going to create a more resilient future and part of that is protecting the environment what has what has this reset this shock that we've all had to our to our you know collective psychology what opportunities present themselves now as feasible that perhaps were not or were far-fetched two months ago three months ago well, I think definitely, um, you know, we're going to, obviously the society is going to invest a lot more in, in pandemics and healthcare, but we've got to like, not just think about solving these problems, but preventing them in the first place. So like I said, you know, banning wildlife trafficking and protecting tropical rainforests, uh, these are two huge steps. But more broadly, I, I do think that there's, th this crisis exposes the fragility of the economy um, and of of sort of society, um, because we, we have not at all invested in re resilient systems. And one of the, or the most important resilient system that we need is the environment that underpins life on earth and underpins our economy. And so I think people are like open to that and committed to that. And, you know, it's, it's fascinating when you see like even Fauci talk about elements of that. And so there is a real opportunity to do that. And, and um, you know, I think it also requires political leadership to seize that opportunity. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think that like Democrats in Congress who are like our only hope for to have anything decent because it's not gonna come from the Republicans um, are, you know, need to keep that in mind. And it's uh, on the one hand, you know, given credit where credit is due, I think they've, they've tried to be a lot, more, a lot more responsive to science and help on the pandemic. On the other hand, like it's very frustrating when you see them going along with bailouts for polluters like airlines, um, you know, not using this as an opportunity to advance things like the Green New Deal that can actually prevent this sort of thing from happening in the future. And whether yeah, it's a I, pandemic crisis or some other kind of crisis. Right. There's that horribly uh, macabre uh, quote that keeps getting bandied around, never let a crisis go to waste. I think it was maybe Warren Buffett that said that. But <clears throat> let's, take that, let's take that reality and, and tease it out a little bit let's say Biden gets elected and he has a uh, supportive Congress behind him. How do you motivate him to put the political capital towards the environment as opposed to things like healthcare and economics, or at least put enough of it towards the environment to achieve some of these sustainable changes that we were talking about? Yeah. And, and do it all in an integrated way so that you're, you know, by taxing pollution, you can generate a lot of revenue that can help with healthcare, for instance. Um, so I think, the number one thing is is urgency and you know i think everybody was so excited about president obama coming into office and rightly so um but the environmental movement was so excited about it so enamored of him uh and what what his election represented that they were unwilling to pressure him to be ambitious on climate for at least two years and as a result the first two years of the Obama administration, even the first four years were quite disappointing when it came to the environment. I mean, he, you know, because he wasn't facing that acute pressure until the movement against the Keystone Pipeline rose up uh, several years into his administration, you know, 
we should remember like the first couple of years were like a spree of oil mining, oil drilling and coal mining on public lands. Um, he didn't do enough to pass climate legislation. Uh, and we can't, we, we've lost, you know, 12 years now. And so we don't have the luxury of just like giving a new president a pass. And so when people turned out, it made a difference with Obama. And like his second term was a lot better and on, on climate issues. And I think the, the attention and urgency to this issue in the Democratic Party is so much greater now. But that has to be manifested with an ambitious agenda and pressure to prioritize it. Like there need to be people outside members of Congress's offices calling for action with urgency, with pressure, and, and holding them accountable if they fall short. And, you know, Democrats are responsive to that. Like they're nothing if not responsive to um, <laughs> small shifts in polling and public opinion and pressure. I think that's a great place to wrap up then. Uh, if you were to give one hopeful message to everyone listening where you're like, this is an example, and I know we've talked about a couple, but one parting one where it's like, this is an example of a reason why we should be very optimistic about what lies ahead. What would that be? Well, I think the baseline reality is that in the United States and around the world, the majority of people are existentially concerned about what's happening to the environment. Um, so that's a good baseline for action. It's not enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say the, the, the most hopeful thing to me and I hope the examples that I went through show this, is that with a very little bit of resources and a bunch of people taking targeted action, you can change terrible companies. You can move government policymakers. And so you have to have a right strategy, but it actually is possible to, to you know, make the impossible reality. And, and that's what we're trying to do at Mighty Earth. And we, we again, I hope you don't mind, but like I welcome, I, we need people to get involved. And so like, please yeah. go to our website, mightyearth.org, sign up, take action, donate if you can. It's amazing like what, what sort of a small group of people uh, can, can accomplish together. And I, I, that, the, my experience of the last, you know, seven years working on, on these types of campaigns has been that there's this is outside success possible. It surprises even me, even though I've been an author of many of them. No, I think that's a great point that uh, a small group of determined people can change the world. In fact, that's the only thing that ever has. I think that's the the quote. Yeah. Um, okay. Mightyearth.org. Let's get involved. Let's help them out. Uh, Glenn, thank you so much for coming on today and lending us your time and teaching us a little bit about how we can actually affect the change that we're going to need. Thank you so much, Lex. 